It's good to be here with you tonight. Again, congratulations on getting to the end of this week. Uh, my name is Chris Saladay. I think I know most of you here tonight, but it's good to see a few, a few friendly and new faces. Um, it's my privilege to bring God's Word to us tonight. We've been going through the book of John, and we'll continue there tonight. But before I get to the scripture passage in John, I thought I'd bring to your attention... Do I need to put this thing down? I sound really loud. Am I really loud? Okay. I thought I'd bring to your attention a 2015 Pew Research study. Exactly. It's a study of Americans and their cell phone usage. Oh, I can do that. This is the American cell phone usage, in, I guess, last year, 2015, in a one-week period. This is the likelihood that they've used their cell phone for the following. To text somebody, 97%. Just nearly about everybody. Email, 88%. To coordinate to meet somebody, 80%. To avoid being bored, 77%. Social network, 75 To take a picture, 60 To learn about a news development, 55%. To resolve or settle an argument, 53%. I think I see a lot of you smiling, you know, and just say, wait a second, why don't we Google that and find out if he's right. To watch a video, 50. To play a game, 50. To GPS or look up to up-to-the-minute traffic, 42%. And then to look up a sporting event score, 23%. I mean, there were a lot of other ones. i just throw those out there. I think most of us who have a phone can identify with that. But the upshot of the, one of the upshots of this study was that American cell phone owners have become so dependent on their cell phones that the average user checks their cell phone about 150 times a day. And maybe just from this, you can begin to see the, the theme where we're going is that we're talking about dependence tonight. Uh, and dependence is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, even in this meeting, we've, we've communicated our dependence on God in a variety of ways. We've prayed. Uh, even by singing in the, the songs that we sing, that's, that's communicating a posture of dependence on God. Uh, so dependence is not necessarily a bad thing, not at all. Uh, sometimes dependence is looked down upon in our culture. It's dismissed too quickly as weakness. You, know, you have to be strong, competent, and independent. Well, but we know that when we're sick, we'd be, really, we'd be fools to not depend on a doctor or medicine to get us better. Um, or when you're lost. We'd be fools to not, if we had the cell phone, to not use the GPS to get us out of that jam. So we get all that. So the issue is who or what are we depending on and why? And like I said, tonight we're going to turn to John 6. That's our passage for tonight. And it's really, as I've been reading through it, considering it, it's really a passage that drives home our dependence on Jesus Christ. Uh, John 6 is a lengthy passage. It's actually 71 verses. So we're going to break it up into two parts. We're not going to look at all 71 verses. But first part, it's a story. It's an account. Jesus miraculously feeds, miraculously feeds many people. Um, we're told 5,000 men. So about 20,000 people when you add women and children. Uh, and he feeds them miraculously with a few loaves and a few fish. I think most of you are familiar with that. And actually, just a real quick aside, before we turn to that account, when you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only, there are only two miracles that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. One is the resurrection, for obvious reasons that's in all four of the Gospels, the resurrection of Jesus. 
And then this parable, this is the only other one that, is, that you see in all four gospel accounts. So there must be something about this particular miracle that moved all four gospel writers to include it in their accounts. So that's part one. We'll look at this, the, the, the account itself as John records it. And then part two, Jesus follows up this, this miracle with, with a long discourse on the greater spiritual meaning that this points to. It's called the Bread of Life Discourse, and I'll lift out a few reflections on how this discourse reveals our great dependence on Jesus Christ. So here we go. So part one, the story. Let's read John 6, uh, it's about the first 15 verses, and I, I'll throw in some comments as well. So I'll, I'll just call on some people to just read nice and loud. Karen, could you read uh, the first four verses? Nice and loud, thanks. Actually, you can go back to the text for just a second. So Jesus is a celebrity at this point of sorts. He has performed a number of miracles. Uh, they're called signs right there in verse 2. They were, a large crowd of people were following him because of the signs that he had performed. And so word spread about him, and, and, and there's a big throngs and thousands of people who are following him. A couple weekends ago, Daniel and I actually took our kids to New York City. Uh, just for the day, and while we were there, it was about 6, 7 o'clock at night, and we were trying to go from one point to another, and on the sidewalks, there were just literally thousands of people, more than typical on a Saturday afternoon in New York. And after a while, trying to push through just the crowds of people to get to where we were trying to go, which was very difficult, I just asked somebody, what's going on? And then the, the, one of the people in the crowd said, well, Alicia Keys is about to sing, and everybody's getting their spot here in the, in the neighborhood to hear her sing. Um, so, I, you know, this is how that scene opens up. There are thousands of people jostling for a position to get near Jesus, to hear him teach, to see what he might do next. And we learn from Luke chapter 9, where he records the same account, that this takes place in the city of Bethsaida. You can, you can go to the, the map. And this is Israel, that Jerusalem would be down here. That's the Sea of Galilee, and up in the northeast corner, you have the city of Bethsaida. I just throw that up there just to give you some reference point, some context. But it's actually where the, one of the 12 disciples, one of the, Philip, that's where he's from. That's his hometown. So just remember that little detail as the story goes on. So next slide, Karen, thanks. Oh, I wasn't going to call on you, Karen, but... Uh, I wanted somebody else to read it. Could you be, oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, that's Karen. Yeah, we've got two Karens. <laughs> Conway, could you read the next slide? Give Karen a break. Thank you. Um, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Uh, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Okay. So Jesus turns to Philip. Remember, this is Philip's turf, his hometown, his people. And he says, you know, where's a good place to buy some bread around here to feed everybody? He knows, he knows the territory. 
So and clearly no small town bakery can manage to feed these 20,000 people. So Jesus, the text says, Jesus is testing Philip, right? And, and one way Philip could have passed this test would have been for him to say, you know, Jesus, I saw you, I was there when you changed the water into wine, and that was clearly miraculous. And I also know the prophet Elijah, going back, he had a few, he had 20 loaves, and God used, through, through Elijah, God multiplied those 20 loaves to feed an entire army. So, Jesus, I know you're greater than Elisha. I've seen you do things like this before. I know you can do it. But Philip doesn't pass the test. He says, you know, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a single bite. You know, there's no way, not enough money, not enough resources. And so next, Jesus takes control. And by the way, right there, Andrew and Philip, or sorry, Andrew and Peter, they failed the test too. So Jesus takes control, and where the disciples only questioned this, Jesus acts. And where the disciples only saw the situation from an earthly perspective, Jesus sees it from a supernatural perspective. So the text goes on. Jason, could you read the next part? Thanks. Jesus said, how did people sit down? There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down about 5,000 years ago. Jesus led to the woods, gave thanks, and distributed to those who received as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. But nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves of So Jesus provided so much food, you know, from these five loaves and two fish, that in verse twelve, that all had enough to eat. And there were still twelve basketfuls of food or bread left over. I mean, this is an amazing miracle. Jesus feeds and satisfies twenty thousand people with a lunch of a boy, you know, barely enough to feed him. And then, somehow miraculously, there's enough leftovers there to feed Jesus and his disciples for days to come. And, and which leads to the crowd's response when they see this. And this is the last part of the account. Um, Tristan, you want to read that? Next. After the people saw the sign of Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is coming to the Jesus, knowing that So the crowd wants to make Jesus king by force, but he knows no, his kingship cannot come by power and force, but instead it must come through rejection, suffering, and death. So Jesus withdraws away, that's how this text ends, or this account ends, he withdraws away from the crowds who want to make him king by force, because he knows they don't understand his mission. So now, there's the account. And transitioning to you know the second part of thinking of some reflections on dependence. Imagine for a moment you're Philip, you know the one who failed to pass the test, but who saw Jesus perform this miraculous sign. What do you now know about Jesus Christ that you didn't know before? Now think about that. What do you now know about Jesus Christ that you didn't know before? Because John, he calls this event a sign. And remember, the purpose of a sign is, is not to point to itself, but to point to that which is greater than itself, to point to a greater reality, a greater spiritual truth. 
So what does this sign, you know, Jesus miraculously feeding the many, what does it teach us about him and about ourselves in relationship to him? And so thankfully, and if you're thinking about that question, considering it, thankfully you and I, Philip, the crowds, they don't have to guess as to what we're supposed to understand or learn. Because Jesus answers that question in the discourse that follows. And this leads us now to part two. And just you know, a few reflections on how this discourse reveals to us our great dependence on Jesus Christ. Um, and I'll phrase some of these reflections from the discourse. I'll phrase it as if Jesus is speaking to you and me. Okay, so the first reflection, and I'll ground it in the text, because I'm not going to read the discourse, because the discourse goes off in basically verse 16 to verse 71. So I'll just highlight a few verses that point us to uh, this reflection. So the first reflection, right? Jesus says, he reminds us of our dependence on him. He says, I am behind all of the bread you've eaten. So you look at verse 14 again from John's text. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed. Now the text is very clear. This is Jesus performing the sign. Jesus, he's the one who creates the bread, ex nihilo, you know, out of nothing. And, and if Jesus is the creator behind this miraculous bread, then what does that mean about the bread that comes from just more traditional means? Farming and growing and grinding wheat. Is he behind that, too? If he provides bread for 20,000 people so easily on the side of a mountain, is he the one providing bread at all places, at all times, for all people? And, and, and this account and other scriptures point to Jesus as provider and sustainer over our lives. There's another, I just pulled this out of Hebrews, another New Testament letter that says, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. So there's the Son as creator, or co-creator. But then it goes on. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. So when you see the Son, you see God. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I mean, here we're given a vision that Jesus, God's Son, is co-creator, he's co-sustainer. All things are being sustained by the word of his power, so Jesus is the center of crops, photosynthesis, growth, life, bread, and food. He's the one behind that. Jesus isn't just behind these miraculous you know, loaves of bread and fish that we did not see. He's behind every single calorie that you and I consume and digest to stay alive. And so, I mean, you can see, like, just we, de we depend on him. And I think this reality would have hit the people of Jesus' day a little bit more quickly than it hits us. You know, we live in an age of abundance, especially in 21st century America. We're not on the precipice of hunger or famine as most of Jesus' listeners were, at least many of them. I mean, the last major famine you could argue in America was the Great Depression, like nearly 80, 90 years ago. And in the meantime, like, we've elevated food preparation, you know, beyond the level of necessity you know, to the level of art. And you know this, because I mean, if any of you watch the Food Network, that's exactly what you know it's about. It's about elevating food to the level of art, not necessity to stay alive and survive. 
Um, and these are some of our celebrities, people on the Food Network, right? They're the artists of the food industry. Actually, the other day, this was like this week, earlier this week, Danielle texted me. She was at Market Fair, which is a mall about three miles away from here. And she texted me and she said, guess what? I'm in the parking lot and I just parked next to Bobby Flay. And she was really excited because <laughs> he's a celebrity. He's a food celebrity. So Jesus reminds us that through this sign, like we depend on him even for the most basic element of life, bread. Even that is coming from him. So there's one reflection. A second reflection. Jesus, you know, he says to us through this discourse, you need more than physical bread to live because I am the bread of life. And he says this many times through the discourse. I think I've highlighted four of them here. Verse 32, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35 and 48, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. And verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Good teachers typically repeat their main points so their listeners don't miss it, and Jesus does that right here. It's hard to miss his main point. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And eating is so basic that we get it. This is good, especially after midterms. You don't have to think hard about this. Eating is a very basic thing that we understand this. right? We get a hunger pang, and, and then we search for bread or something else to satisfy that. And we keep searching until we find the thing that satisfies. And then when we find it, we eat it, and it satisfies our hunger pangs, and then we are nourished, and then the process repeats itself again a few hours later, and it goes on for about 80 years. God gives us that many years. <laughs> it's really it, isn't it? You know, a, a smile child understands that concept. This is why babies cry, this is why toddlers throw tantrums, this is why you and I get very moody and sometimes mean when we've skipped a meal. Like, we get this. But is that all we are? Right? Is that, does that boil sort of the essence of a human being now? That we're physical bodies that need fuel every 80, or every few hours for 80 years or so? Like, are we not much more different than a car that needs tank or gas when the tank gets low? And no, we know. No, we're much more than that. Like, we, we have a higher purpose, which is to say we need more than just bread and food to nourish us and satisfy us. We have hunger pangs that go beyond the physical. Right? In our physical hunger pangs, they're a powerful reminder, a pointer, a sign that we're creatures that are constantly on the prowl, looking for things to satisfy us, things beyond bread. And uh, this, 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 this reality comes home to me so so well on campus. Do you guys are aware of how you can get on a listserv on campus for when there's food? Like, there's like an organization, yeah, I see most of you shaking your head. Maybe you guys are on this listserv, okay? Right, there's an organization, so in case you don't know, I'll tell you about it. There's an organization, they'll have like an event, there's food, and then when the, the event's over and there's food left over, rather than letting go to waste and throw it away, there's a listserv that they just sort of text or email and say, hey, there's free food at this place, come get it. And I have been there <laughs> when the people who are ending the event you know, send the email out or the, the whatever to alert people. And it's incredible. Within minutes, students from all over campus bring their appetites and their large containers <laughs> to, like, just get the food, you know, and just get to run off and just enjoy it. It's like vultures, seagulls. <laughs> I just, I thought... 
that's a really insightful parable for like how all of us are. Maybe you're not on that list, sir, and you're not that interested in free food. But how all of us are in, in, in terms of we're, we're looking for those things that will satisfy our hunger. And we'll go to great lengths to, to, to find it and to get it. And it might be a job or a career. We might think maybe that will satisfy us. So we run to that. Or a relationship. And we run to that. Achievements, influence, status, things, stuff, money, recognition, vacations, leisure, hobbies. I mean, I mean, there's just so many things that we run to and look to to satisfy the deeper hunger pangs of life. And Jesus, he knows us so well. He knows that we have hunger pangs in all sorts of directions, and we seek to satisfy them in a variety of ways. And, and that's why he says, you know, I am the true bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He recognizes that work, relationships, things, achievements, you know, they're often good things and sometimes they'll satisfy us, but they will never always or perfectly satisfy us. Only he is the true bread, he says. Only he is the bread of life. And, and if you're like me, I mean, you, you want you, know, you want to know what, what what does that look like? You know, bring it down from from the, the, the theological to like daily life. And so, for example, when I was a school teacher, I was an eighth grade algebra school teacher. There were days that I found my work deeply satisfying. You know, the teaching letter lesson went much better than I planned. I helped students through tough times, came alongside of them in meaningful ways. I had opportunities to talk about my faith with my colleagues. I felt like I was making a tangible difference for, for the good in the community. You know, there, those, were, those were days of satisfaction. But then there were just days of just, just blah. You know, students telling me that algebra stinks and that it's pointless. <laughs> Which translation I felt like, well, I guess they're saying my job stinks and I'm pointless. <laughs> you know, eighth graders are not the most sensitive bunch of people to be around. You know, there might, a week might go by with no meaningful conversations or even frustrations at work, conflicts, relational, professional frustrations. You know, and so Jesus, and sometimes work will satisfy us, but then sometimes it won't. I mean, you have your own story, you can tell. Or you take relationships. If you have, if you have a great friend or a, a dear sibling or, or a significant other, you know, you know, they get to know you. They understand you, they encourage you, they challenge you in all the right ways, and they stick with you through everything. And it's great, it's like it's satisfying. You know, God really uses them to strengthen you in profound ways. But, because they're a human being, they also, the same people who satisfy you, they, they hurt you. They drive you crazy sometimes. They fail you. You, you learn in all of your relationships that there is no perfect relationship. So Jesus, he doesn't want us to get rid of our desires for these things. You know, to, to stop hungering after these things. You know, a desire to make an impact at work, for growing in love with those around us. But Jesus says we can't expect that those desires will, you know, will fully satisfy us. Because they're not the true bread. They're not the bread of life. Only he is. So both, for those of us who follow Christ... We hear that, and so then it becomes, it's about allowing Jesus to reorder our desires 
to redirect our work or our relationships or our ambitions. And, and so for work, you know, in my case, it becomes less about finding satisfaction in what I'm doing and more about, okay, Jesus, you've put me here. Help me be a good school teacher that reflects your character to my students, to my colleagues, through my thoughts, through my, through my words, and through my actions. Because I know that satisfaction with work, it will come and go, like the tide. So that's not my purpose here. So then when the satisfaction doesn't come, it doesn't devastate you. It might frustrate you or make you sad, but it doesn't devastate you, because that's not your purpose. You know, I'm not looking to work to ultimately satisfy you. Same thing with relationships. Jesus, you know, you say, I thank you for this person, all that they are, all that they're becoming, um, the, the joy that we have together. But I also know that this person, it's not my son yet. They can't love me with the same unfailing love that you have for me. And nor should I expect them to. There's nobody like you. Jesus says to us, you need me more than physical, you need more than physical bread to live. So work, relationships, achievements, don't depend on these to satisfy your ultimate hungers. Because I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Depend on me for your satisfaction. Uh, so another reflection. Jesus says, just as the bread has to die for you to live, so I must die for you to live. And John 6.51, which is actually getting toward the end of his discourse, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I mean, and again, this is like straightforward. It's pretty easy to understand, especially after midterms. There's a fundamental principle of eating that we all get. Well, I don't think we think about it that much, but it's really easy to understand. Something has to die in order for us to live. Beans have to die when we eat them in order for us to live. Wheat, cows, plants, fruit. Like when we eat these things, those things have to give up their life so that we can live. I've had conversations with like some five and six year olds. It's a great age to talk to kids. And I've had conversations with like they're eating chicken. And they'll ask me, oh, where does this chicken come from? And I, I say, and I'm very careful here. I tread very carefully. I say, well, it's a chicken. <laughs> you know, like the animal. And then they'll say, you mean the kind that when we go to the farm and we like put a quarter in the corn machine and we go and we feed the chickens, like that kind of chicken? Yes, like that kind of chicken. And then you can see them like make the connections that this was once alive. This is the chicken at the farm. It, it had to die, and I'm now eating it. And they just had no idea before that moment. You know, and I don't blame these kids that they don't get it, because we're so detached from the food process. I mean, I encourage you to ask Danielle about her traumatic experience when she went to the Dominican Republic on a PF mission trip, and she had to butcher two chickens. She likes nice, neat, packaged meat, in the, in the grocery aisle, just like I do. <laughs> like we have a skewed perspective. Every just thing just kind of appears, right? We just go down the bread aisle, and there's like 20 different loaves to choose from. And it's all right there. Uh, you know, we have frozen veggies in a bag. We, like, we forget that these things in the packages, they had to die 
before they came to the grocery store. So you go back to verse 51. Jesus is the living bread that comes down from heaven, he says, and he knows full well that he will give of himself, he says, in such a way that he will give his flesh for the life of the world. Jesus is the bread of life because he's the one willing to sacrifice his body, says his flesh, on the cross so that those who inhabit this world might have life through him. He dies so that we might live. Just like bread has to die for us to live. And, and when he dies and we put our faith in him, we have confidence to stand before God, forgiven, secure, adopted as God's own. A Christian completely depends on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that his death brings us life. And every time we eat, we should recognize that something has died so that we might live. And let this be a small and powerful reminder of the larger spiritual truth that Jesus, he died so that we might live. A, a truth that points us to Christ's death and resurrection for us. So one more reflection on our dependence on Jesus. Jesus says, you must feed upon me personally and believe that I am the true bread of life. People can do lots of things on your behalf. I mean, you, you get this. You know, but they can't eat for you. Like, for example, you might say to a friend, you know, I'm really busy. Could you, when you go to lecture, our lecture today, could you take notes for me? Sure. You can even say, I'm really busy. I, I just finished my paper, but I don't have time to proofread it. Could you do that for me? You could even say, I'm really busy. I don't have time to write this paper. Could you do that for me? Now, that's not recommended, but you actually you could say that, and they could do that, right? People could write a paper for you. But you cannot go to a person and say, you know, I'm really, really busy. Could you eat for me? Right? You just can't. It doesn't work. Eating is a very personal act, and it's always a personal act. And when you listen to Jesus' discourse, there's this progression that goes through it, where his appeals become more and more personal. So let me just run through them. And you just listen. In verse 27, you'll see both in number, we start low and go high, and just in terms of the verbs that Jesus uses. Don't labor for the food that perishes, or for, for the good. I think that's the food. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So these things, like believing in, coming to, looking on, eating and feeding on, they're all synonymous. They all mean the same thing in terms of the discourse. Jesus is saying the same thing in each, but... When it gets to eating, it is intimately and particularly personal, right? Since Jesus really is the bread of life, people must personally accept who he is and what he has done for them. Only you can personally take in Jesus Christ into your heart, into your life. Only you can feed on him in that way and satisfy the hunger of your soul and for the life that he offers. Nobody else can do that for you. It's a personal act. 
And Jesus, he urges the crowd of people who are with him, remember, to, to go beyond being amazed at him. That he can feed so many, you know, with so little. He urges them to go beyond revering him as a good teacher, you know, with great authority. He, he urges them to personally take him in, to feed on him as Savior and Lord over their life. So coming back to our theme of dependence, you have to depend on Christ personally. Others might help you, encourage you to do that, but just like eating, such a decision is a personal act that only you can do. So where are you with Jesus Christ tonight? Have you been curious, amazed at him, but haven't taken him in personally? Then Jesus, he urges you to take him in, to feed on him. And you will find that when you do that, he is trustworthy, he is good, he is the bread of life, just as he says. Have you taken him in personally, but you're feeding on things that you shouldn't? Looking to other things to satisfy you, but don't? Just can't? Then he urges you once again to come back to him, to reorient your life around him, center on him as the true bread of life. Or are you feeding on him? You're coming to know him in a deeper way. You're understanding his grace better. You're quick to confess sin, quick to obey him and trust him with joy. Then he urges you to keep feeding on him yourself, to share him with others, so that they too might know that he is their bread of life, or can be their bread of life as well. So as we head into fall break, may we all be nourished in a deeper way in the days ahead by the love and the goodness the truth of Jesus Christ, who is our bread of life. Amen. Amen.